If you would stand with me, we are in 1 John chapter 3. We are continuing on with a, a wonderful word about loving one another. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, John writes, God speaks. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But... If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. If you were to think back just this past week, for things that involved reminders, what would come to mind? So you might think of Thanksgiving where we celebrated and we were reminded of our our country, our heritage, the thankfulness that we have for all the opportunities we have. Maybe somebody had a birthday recently and you were reminded of the gift of that person's life. Maybe it's as simple as the shopping list, the grocery list that you made out of all the things to get for that Thanksgiving meal and the benefit of that reminder until you forgot it and didn't take it to the store. Or the reminder of the alarm clock that went off this morning to get up. Our lives are full of reminders. In fact, Samuel Johnson, the famous old English writer and poet, said, we have more need of reminders than of being informed of new things. Reminders are critical for us. And so that is where John starts us this morning in this passage of a reminder. And the reminder he gives us is basically this. Christians are to be known by our love. Okay, so you filled in the blank, so why don't you do it? Well, wait, that's a nice greeting. I'm accusing you already. But no, what I mean, he says we're to love one another. But if we're honest, we would admit often we do not love one another. So what would be the reason? I don't love so-and-so because, what would you put in the blank? If you're going to get the spiritual answer, we're in church, there's a sermon. Oh, it's sin. It's my sin. Woe is me. But if we're honest in our hearts, how often is it I don't love so-and-so because it's Him, her, them, it's their problem. Once they become more lovable, then I'll become more loving. Let's pray for them. We'll see if John lets us off the hook with that this morning. Because he's going to give us exhortation about loving one another. 
So you have a, uh, if you have a bulletin, you have an outline that you can follow along with us in the bulletin. The big idea is simply this. Our loving one another shows that the love of God is in us. Our loving one another shows that the love of God is in us. And if you want a simple, simple jingle to go by, it would be this. If you know it, show it. If you know God and his love for you, then you can, should, must show it to others. And he's, John's going to give us five M's to follow. We'll have a message. We'll have a model not to follow. We'll have a motivation, a why. Then we'll have a model to follow. And then finally, we'll have a means or a method of showing that love to one another that John will give us here. So a love for one another should come out. It should if you're a Christian. That's simple. Love one another. But it's not easy. Simple doesn't mean easy. It's not natural. And realizing that can actually be an encouragement. How is that? The fact that you struggle with loving one another is not proof that you failed Christianity 101. It's actually pretty likely that you'll struggle with this. In fact, Jesus, in Luke 22, so after he's been with the disciples for years, he's with them, and a a strife, a conflict breaks out where they're struggling with loving one another. And what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest among us? And you can kind of picture the scene. You'd have, Peter would have a case for it. I'm the greatest. Jesus gave me the keys to the kingdom. I'm the rock. Got James and John. They're the sons of thunder. Peter, you're just a little wimpy fisherman. We're number one and two. And then you got Andrew. Well, I was, I was the first one called. I'm the greatest. And then you got all the others on the side there now saying, oh boy, they've really dug a hole for themselves. Here's our chance to be moving on up. Point being simply that they struggled with this amongst their time with Jesus. It's understood Jesus knew that we would struggle in conflict as well. And so he gives us then a model here not to follow. If you look in the passage... The model not to follow is Cain. John goes back to the Old Testament. Powerful, extreme illustration here of Cain. And if you think back on the history of Cain, you have Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, the fall, and then there's a promise. Adam and Eve, I will not leave you. A redeemer, a seed will come from you, through you. There is hope. Ten verses later, Cain, there's Cain. Surely they're thinking, this is the Redeemer. Cain and Abel, his brother, they're raised. Mother and father, Adam and Eve, telling them stories about our clothes are given from the animal that was slayed for our sin, a sacrifice given for us. You give sacrifices as well. So Abel... Abel, raising animals, he gives the best animal that he has. And in Hebrews 11, it says that God approved, accepted that offering. Cain is a farmer. He brings from the fruit of the land. God does not accept it. 
We don't know if it's because he didn't give the right offering. We don't know. Maybe it was his heart in giving it. Maybe he didn't treat his sin um, as seriously as he should have. But the point is, he had another chance. God speaks to him. God warns him and says, uh, Cain, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. It's like we would picture a terrorist out there. This is that serious, Cain. This is life or death that you do this right. The Psalms say that sin speaks to the wicked man in his heart. What did uh, Cain do? The passage says he was of the evil one. He killed violently his own brother. A gross sin that we should not downplay. Maybe it's because, oh, his parents loved the other one better. Or maybe this or that. We don't need to psychoanalyze this. It says he was of the evil one. He did a gross sin. So when the readers and the hearers would hear of Cain, they would think of him in the same way that we might think of Hitler or Stalin. So you might say, well, wait, I'm not as bad as them. Come on, let's, let's be realistic. And in one sense, yes, you, I, we're not as depraved as a Hitler or a Stalin. However, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He says, in the way that we destroy the character of another, of a brother or sister, we are murdering. We are murdering. And the verse goes on here, and it says in this passage that the one who does not love abides in death, abides in evil. And so in some case, we actually have an argument here in this passage for where does evil come from? Where there's not love, the absence of God and love, there is evil. Absence of abiding in God is abiding in evil. So let's, let's take a minute for just to sink in and, and a bit of application. What happens in your heart when someone else is praised? Do you become bitter? Do you end up speaking of that person in a slightly negative way? Let's lower them on the ladder a little bit so they're not too much above me. Or do you want the best for that other person who is being praised? Part of loving someone is wanting the best for them, maybe even that they get better than what you have. Loving one another. If we know the love of God, then we show it by not being focused on ourselves in the way that Cain was. Then John, while speaking of the model of Cain not to be, he gives us a third point, a motivation In verse 13, he inserts this. He says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, hates us. Ignatius, early church father, said this. He said, Christianity is truly great when it is hated by the world. When it is hated by the world. And knowing that hatred is coming for you, brother and sister, helps you to deal with it. Christ gave a similar warning to his own disciples that they're going to hate you because they hated me. Now, the world hates the Christian not because the Christian is good. Not because the Christian is good. The world would see good as a compliment to itself because the world thinks, I don't have a problem 
We don't have a problem. We are good. The world likes good people as compliments. In fact, if you think of family, if you have non-Christian family, your family won't hate you for doing good. Your family actually won't even hurt you for when you do wrong. But they may very well, and some of you may have experienced this, they'll hate you when you say you're Christians. Because when you're Christians, you're saying, I really have a higher calling. I have another family that is actually most important. Jesus said that those who do the will of my father are my brothers and sisters. That's when you can experience hatred for being and identifying with Christ. So if you know it, if you show it, you might end up living a hard life, but you keep on showing. Paul then, after this warning, this exhortation, gives us a model to follow. He contrasts Cain, elder brother, with Christ, our elder brother. In verse 16, we've been hearing the word know. I've said that multiple times. If you know it, then show it. Here we have this word, know, the third time that John uses it in the passage. And he uses the word in the perfect tense, which simply means this. It's a past action that has an ongoing effect. It's not you knew Jesus and you prayed a prayer when you were little and that's it. It has an ongoing effect. And experienced knowing, an ongoing knowing, and even if it costs me my life knowing, we have relationship with our dear Savior, the Lord, the King of glory, who gave his blood for us. It wasn't an accident. It was an intentional, complete act of the greatest love of another ever known. And we could think of this. We're, we're in an age now, you might call it an age of, of moral outrage. There, we, we, we feel moral outrage about, all you got to do is pick up a newspaper, read, watch the news, what might be against Hollywood producers for immorality, politicians for not holding to what they were going to do, being untruthful, their own immorality, for athletes, for protesting or not protesting, all these different things. And did just the mention of those maybe stir up just a little bit of moral outrage in you? I'm not even saying which side you should be on in that, but those things, we feel some moral outrage. And as David Zoll says, the point is that moral outrage fills a psychological need. It allows a person to feel like they matter, especially when they're afraid that they don't. We rely on this moral outrage for our validation, justification, and the measure of our virtue. But here is the gospel of Christ, the elder brother, in comparison to Cain. Rather than Jesus pointing the righteous finger at us for all the massive sins we've committed and feeling all that moral outrage against us, and when he could have said, I'm not going to die for them, I'm going to kill them all for our self-righteous anger. Instead, he dies for us in that greatest act of loving one another. Because he gave for us, if we get it, if we know it, then we can be willing to give whatever may be asked in return, even dying. So, unbeliever who might be here this morning, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're hearing, wow, I came because of the holidays or because of relatives and and now you wacko Christians are talking about dying. Whoa, 
Charles Manson, I thought he died as he's gone. Jim Jones, those cult things, those are gone. What are you guys talking about dying? I'm out of here. So for the seeker, for the unbeliever, the reality is for the Christian is that we are called to be all in. It's sobering. It's real. I mean, there are absolutely Christians throughout the world who are dying daily, hourly for the cause of Christ. And we're not going to make it up and say, well, coming to Jesus is easy. It can be happy, clappy. Everything goes away and all is good. Yahoo. No, but we will say with Jim Elliott, he's no fool to give up what he can't keep to gain what he cannot lose. For the Christian, we have that challenge to say, yes, I am willing. I would die. I would give my life for Christ. But in the meantime... Are you willing to do the little things? Children, to make that ultimate sacrifice and do the dishes. Make your bed. Help your brother or sister with their homework, even when they were mean to you. Husband, do the little things. Fill up the car with gas when it's cold. Wife, iron your husband's clothes. That's chuckle at that one. <laughs> Personal note there, that's, that's really on me. But the New Testament doesn't ask us to do something without first reminding us of who we are. So in other words, indicative precedes imperative. You can see it in sports. The great coaches, they inspire. They inspire by first letting their team know who you are, therefore go and do. You are this, therefore you can do this. See it even with the mascots. You know, the, your mascots are typically tough. You know, the tigers, the wolves, the bears. You'll, you heard it here that the, the UC, the University of Can California, Santa Cruz, banana slugs, they're never going to win a national championship. <laughs> I'm going on, I'm going to step out on a limb and say, that, but who wants to be... A banana slug. It's just not tough enough. The, the indicative is not going to flow into an imperative there. So, but but the, the gospel is saying, go out and be who you are, Christ follower. The blood is in us will come out. And if you know the love of God, you'll show it because of what Christ has done for us. So ask yourself, what not, don't, don't say this, what can I get for myself, but rather what to what can I give myself? To what can I give myself? And now, oh, okay, I'm sorry. And so now, speaking of that, we move into to what can I give myself? The means, the final point, the M. We get to the heart of this. I love this, this part of the passage. So we'll read it again, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So, but if anyone has the world's goods. So this is saying you have some of the wealth. Plenty, but not necessarily lavish. And in one sense, congratulations, you here in America are part of the wealthiest 1% in the world. We fit here. Whether you have a lavish amount, you have plenty, I have plenty that is indicated here. And sees his brother in need. Now the Jews, interestingly, 
they would say, we never have anybody in need who's a Jew because we care for our own because we're Jews. We make sure to do that. In the apocryphal writings, they would even say, give alms to the poor because you will merit salvation for yourself. But don't give to a sinner. Problem is, we're all sinners before Christ. And we don't merit anything by the giving. Yet closes his heart against him. The convicting part there. Callous actually sees the need, feels the need, and says, I don't have time. It doesn't matter. They don't deserve it. Closes the heart. I'm not going to do anything. Then the convicting question comes. How does God's love abide in him? And this is not talking about a person's love for God. This is talking about God's love for others. Saying, how can that love for others that God has abide in you when you close off your heart that way? But the positive side is also this. When we do show that love to others, it shows that the love of God is in us, which gives us assurance that we are truly his. The whole book of 1 John, one of the main themes of this, we're going to get to it in 1 John 5, is this. These things I write to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you know you have eternal life. Assurance is so immense in this book and such a blessing to have that. Thomas Manton said, God is likely to reward the faithful with his assuring seal of light and comfort. The less we are Christians in show and the more in sincerity, the more joy and peace. That assurance that comes when we are following and living the way God desires that we do. If we know it, we show it. And the distinguishing mark of a Christian is a costly, practical love. Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary, said, It's possible to give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. A good tree is going to bear good fruit. And this passage, in a sense, is taking that tree and cultivating the soil around it so that the roots can spread out, so that it can flourish. It's an exhortation, a reminder to us to love one another. Two applications. Two applications. Loving the one another who is nearby. You're nearby one another. That person you know who's a Christian, but you may have a tough time getting along with them. Loving requires a mind, a, a commitment, an effort around it in this case, versus liking, which happens naturally, physically. I like this about them. I don't like this. I like that trait. I like that person. So you could love, but not like. But let's make it clear. Do not tell somebody... I don't like you, but I have to love you. Good job, Mr. Mrs. Holy. You really won someone for Christ with that line. In fact, the bad side is that other person might be doing the same thing, but they were actually holy and humble enough not to do that to you. Romans 14 talks about the weak and the strong. You might assume you're the strong. You might be the weak, and they're the strong, and they're being holy and humble. Point being, we need to love the one another who is around us. And we need to do it 
in a good way. Think, and you can apply this to your marriage as well for those who are married. You can love that person even when you want to give the line, well, I, didn't, I never really loved them. I never really did. They're the one God has given you now. You absolutely can love that person now. And the marriage can be turned around to be a God-glorifying uh, marriage. Because love minimizes and goes beyond what it doesn't like. You, you, you might be, if we talk in, in terms of, if you know the Myers-Briggs, you might be a highly intuitive, feeling INFP on the Myers-Briggs scale, and it's tough for you to be motivated by conviction, but you're called here to think about loving and seeing Christ in that person. Or you might be on the other end. You might be an ST, a sensing and thinking where it's hard to feel, but it's saying you feel for the poor and needy. You need to feel that. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the Myers-Briggs, it's okay. The punchline is we are called to show love to one another. There's no getting off the hook by saying that's not my personality. I'm not made that way. And the beautiful thing is when you step out and, and, and show that love, the feeling might follow later. Treat them as if you like them. Find evidences of grace and show that love and watch what happens later. In fact, it's, it's interesting. I got this sermon. You get to 1 John 3.18, and that is the verse, the one verse that, that Don and I have in our ring as a reminder when we were married. And, and, and I love her, and I feel, I, I feel it. I like her. I love her, so that's good. But, but there are times when... I need to remind her, hey, I know I'm a jerk, but you still have to love me. Ha, ha, ha. You thought I was going to say I'm not loving her. No, I know I'm the bad one. So, but I get to remind her, it's in our ring. You have to continue to love me, even though you don't feel like it. I was smart. Um, so the, the second application, though, is this. Love that person who's nearby, but then the far away one, the far away one another. To, we know it, we show it. it with, with Redeemer, so we're really moving out, in some sense, way out here. With missions, we have emphasized that, that, that missions in Redeemer needs to get into our DNA. It needs to impact who we are at the core. Whether it's the, the and all the ministries can, can show and live out missions. Whether it's the children's ministry, writing cards to missionaries, life groups, praying for them. To our youth not just being called to care for the missionaries, but to think about one day maybe your life might be spent on the mission field. And so you're going to see us promote more and more missions is a good thing because loving one another with the gospel, with church planning, with evangelism, with mercy, it's the heart of God. And so with missions, you, you have three choices you can go yourself on the mission field and take part spreading the gospel here, nationally, internationally, wherever you can go. And what a beautiful thing. You could send. You can become a minor character in the plot of someone else where you're equipping them, you're giving to them, you're, you're investing in them. So you can go, you can send, or you can disobey. Third choice. 
Because all of us are in some sense called to be involved in missions. I mean, you just think about it, how connected the world is now with technology. There is so much you can do, even if you're not the one directly out there, that you can do to to equip others. And we're not just talking about the homeless guy on the street, throw a tip a buck in the bucket so that you don't feel bad about it. We're talking about something so much uh, uh, bigger, in a sense, investing in ministries um, and, and seeing the work of the church go out further. I mean, you can think about this. Um, Dr. Teve Johnson spoke recently his, his talent and his gifts in medical field. So he went um, and, and serves in Togo, helping to heal people physically while they also come in and hear the gospel. You might say, well, I'm not a medical person, but I, I do a bit of business. There are so many opportunities now where, uh, where, where in third world countries, some, one of the, 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 the natives comes and they have an idea about a business. And so you, if you're talented in business, can help to vet that for them and say, this is good or this is not good. Do this, don't do that. And you can help to give counsel. And there are agencies that will invest in that. You can be involved. Or you can teach and train and encourage the missionaries, the indigenous pastors. There are so many Americans who, who aren't pastors, who aren't teachers, but yet you have such an immense amount of knowledge and, 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 and theological training that you could still invest in others is often the case. We want to, as a church, do more and do it in an empowering way where we are caring for the folks. And it's not just saying we have the answer because of what's in our wallet. It is saying the gospel is I'm broken, you're broken, and our aroma is not from ourselves, it's from Christ. It's from Christ. And I close with this. In the early church, you can go back to, and this isn't like a Roman Catholic thing or Protestant thing. This is you know, way before that. Is evidence as early as 200 A.D. The Christians would make the sign of the cross when they would greet one another. And so literally the, the sign of the cross being in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. So there's the vertical relationship where we're saying I have to and I want to and I should because God loved me, I love him, vertical relationship there's also the, the horizontal relationship, which is saying that love of God should manifest itself by loving others through the heart. I love them. I give to them. If you know it, we should show it. Let us pray. Father, we do not lose sight of other passages of Scripture, of, of, of 1 Corinthians 13, that tell us, yeah, we could, we could go out and do all kinds of good things, but if we don't have the right love, the right motivation, then we're just a banging gong, a clanging cymbal. So we pray that it would be clear that the love that we should have and do have for others is because Christ, you, have loved us first. And we also realize that it's easy often to feel loving driving around listening to Christian radio and, oh, I feel 
loving. But then when we bump up against others, that's when it gets hard. Help us to love others, to help us to be humble, to realize that so often I'm the problem in the relationship. Help me to repent. Help me to ask forgiveness. Help me to do whatever it takes so that you are glorified in and through our relationships that the world might see and give praise and glory to you. In Christ's name, amen.